Hello and welcome to Sports Talk, brought to you by sportstalk.ie. I'm Denise O'Flaherty and over the past few months I've chatted to a number of sports stars and personalities in a relaxed and casual format. I've had Ray Houghton, Chris Kamara, Trevor Welch and Ivani Quillen, to name a few. I would like to thank everyone for coming on the show. Our show is sponsored by Medell Healthcare and we would like to thank them for their continued support. This week's guest played with Arsenal and West Ham before he eventually travelled north to Glasgow. He became a fan's favourite at Celtic Park and was affectionately known as Big Bad John. It's John Hartson. Big Bad John, loved by so many though. And we'll start off with your Celtic career because there's so many Celtic fans here in Ireland and abroad. Three league titles, two Scottish Cup titles, a League Cup and then the run to the UEFA Cup final in 2003. Throw in your 110 goals. Now it's clear to see why you're a Celtic legend. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Uh, although I always only thought that there was one legend in our team and, and that was Henrik. <laughs> I genuinely think that, you know, the word legend is thrown about sometimes uh, like confetti, you know. Um, but a legend is somebody very, very special. And um, that goes that complete sort of um, on a different stratosphere in terms of a player. That to me is what you would describe a legend as, and, you know. Um, so... For me to be called that, um, it's very humbling and it's very um, it's very nice to think, you know, I had a great rapport with the Celtic support um, and I played in a great team as well and the Marcelo Biel. No, I, I enjoyed my career. It probably went a little bit too quick, but, uh, you know, no, Celtic's a very special, uh, a very special club and my time there was... Uh, Thoroughly amazing, and that's the only word I can describe to, uh, to you know, say to describe my time there. You know, you also got the Players' Player of the Year and the Football Writers' Player of the Year in 2005. So, for your peers, and then obviously for the people that go to matches, that was a big honour for you. Yeah, it was. I think the Players' Player was, I think it's arguably the, the best trophy mm. that any player can win because... It's coming from, you know, your fellow peers, the, the players that you're going up against every every other week. Your own players can't obviously vote for uh, each But, no, to think that you could into battle with these guys, you know, you're battling cups and you're, it's head-to-head for the best part of ten and a half months. And obviously you've got the cup competitions as well. And uh, for them to say that, you know, you were the best player that year in the whole league... You know, I shared that with and God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, we had equal equal amount of votes, and Fernando kept the trophy for six months, and then obviously handed over to me, um, which was quite easily sorted out, really, um, between the two of us. But we, you know, we we were both delighted to win it because we both had equal respect for how the votes become, you know, and. You know, it is the best award to win because you can't get a better accolade than your, you know, the players that you go up against every week you're competing with. For them to vote for you, you know, for me, that that is, uh, you know, you can get football writers, you can get players, you can get um, different types of awards, but the Players' Player of the Year award um, 
is is a very special award. That that's, that was always my feeling about it. I'm, I've proudly got that award sitting in my lounge at home in a cabinet. We mentioned the goals, and for me, obviously, as a Celtic fan, anyone against Rangers, brilliant. And then the Liverpool one. Now, my English team, obviously, and a lot of Irish people would have an English team as well as a Scottish team, would be Liverpool. And I remember my friend Justin saying to me, you know, when I was telling him I was talking to you, and he was saying, you know, he was half gutted and half wanting to celebrate. What was your favourite goal, or do you have favourites? Well, I enjoyed the goals against Rangers. Mm -hmm. I think that that's when you can... You know, you really, the fans take to you because that's their big rivals and uh, they are the games that you want to win more than any other games because of the the rivalry and, and obviously the um, the bragging rights and the banter, however way you want to, well, to say it. Mm. So they are the games that they're all desperate to win. It's a game that is showed in over 100 countries all around the world. Um, historically, it's, it's always been a great match. Um, uh, you know, very ferocious, um, can spill over at times like it has done yeah. over the years. Um, you know, so, so scored, I think it was eight or nine goals against yeah. Rangers during my time. Um, but obviously the one against Liverpool as well, because I supported Liverpool. I had a soft spot for Liverpool because Ian Rush was, was my idol. He was my hero growing up in Wales. He was the Welsh centre forward. Um, he, he was a goal scorer. And Mark Hughes and Dean Saunders. These guys were all ten years older than me. They, they were my heroes growing up. And Dean and eventually, Liverpool as well. Dean did, yeah. Graham Sooners took him to Liverpool, yeah, yeah from Derby. Um, Dean's a great lad. He's from Swansea as well, like myself. So uh, we know each other very well, myself and Dean. Um, so the Liverpool goal was very special because one, it put the semi-final of the UEFA Cup. Uh, secondly, it was at Anfield where yeah. um, nobody really gets, you know, in Europe. Liverpool yeah. are such a, a magnificent European team who generally get the get the result done on the night, the one that they want. They've had some unbelievably famous evenings at Anfield under the lights in Europe. So to have gone there on a Thursday night and played so well and won 2-0, um, which was a wonderful result for Celtic as a football club, yeah. and played so well, and obviously to have scored that clinching goal, which wrapped the game up at 2-0, you know, that, was an, that was also a very uh, special special evening. But the goal again out in Celta Vigo, uh, which took Celtic through uh, beyond Europe for the first time in 20 years, and that was obviously a very big goal financially for the club um, and the supporters also. So, you know, out of them 110, I'm only saying three, three or four. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure there was plenty of others that, you know, we could talk about. So, um, no, they were probably my favourites, Denise, you know. When you look at the team and you mentioned, obviously, Henrik, you've had yourself, Chris Sutton, Neil Lennon, I loved Bobo, Alan Thompson, you know, it was a great team that Martin O'Neill yeah. had there. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was, it was um, you know, it was blessed with experience. And I think if you look at their names there, you could even say Paul Lambert and Stan Petrov. I and, forgot my favourite player, know. sorry, Jackie. Well, after you, yeah. Jackie, <laughs> Jackie McNamara, my roommate as well. And, you know, we had some fabulous players. Yeah. And, you know, they all, they all had that, that will to win and that work ethic. And we always fancied our chances, 
you know, Martin would say, look around the dressing room, look, look at the player to your left and look at the players to your right. And you could trust, you could trust your teammates. And, you know, we were very close. We had a good bond there. And we had a wonderful time of it as well in terms of success, winning trophies and, and everything else. So that was a lot of that was down to Martin O'Neill because he, he, he tended to put that team together. Yeah. You know, he brought Neil Lennon, myself, Chris Sutton, Alan Thompson up from the Premier League. He made some big signings. You know, the club backed him, the owners backed him to, to make to spend the money on the on the signings that he wanted. You know, and it all came together. The UEFA Cup run Unfortunately, we couldn't quite beat Jose Mourinho's Porto. Um, but fantastic success domestically, you know, Scottish Cups, league wins, trebles, everything else. So, no, that was, that was a really, really good team, a, a special team of players as well. You mentioned that UEFA Cup run and the final, and obviously, unfortunately, you missed out on it. But the support that Celtic got over there, a friend of mine, Jason, up in Donegal, he was over at it. And, you know, it's one of those games that I wish I was there, even if I hadn't got a ticket for the game, just to be in Seville. Yeah, I suppose there was lots of people over there, actually, that did what you were thinking of doing, you know, going without a ticket. There was not everybody who had managed to have got a ticket. So there was plenty of Celtic fans worldwide would have got would have tried to get to Seville that night obviously to watch Celtic very you know um, unique opportunity you know Celtic get into a European final of course um, as I said there was I think there was over 70,000 Celtic fans there and, and incredibly there was one arrest yeah. and, I, and, I, and I believe that was a gentleman that fell asleep on a bench um, and he couldn't get get to his hotel or whatever. <laughs> I think the police gave him a ticket for being uh, for being drunk on a bench. Um, so it's amazing, you know, the Celtic fans. So many, so many travelled, and um, and they had a wonderful evening. Although we lost the game, we couldn't quite deliver the uh, the UEFA Cup. Um, but I'm sure we give them some great times. Not just in the final, but along the yeah. way as well. The, the wins against Blackburn and yeah. going to Stuttgart and winning and the win at Liverpool. Um, you know, so it was, the, the whole tournament was uh, was very special. It's just it's just uh, a little bit of a shame that we couldn't quite, you know, get the job done on the evening. But I missed that game. I had a back operation, yeah. obviously. And that was the one game I missed out of the whole tournament and I, I was on 25 goals that season so um, I'm not too sure whether they made a difference because mm-hmm. the, it, it, it was a boiling hot evening and I, I, I used to uh, despise playing in the heat uh, because of my calorie mm-hmm. you know I just used to burn and uh, I used to find it difficult playing in the warm weather so I'm not too sure it was it was, it was, it was really really hot that evening it really was you could tell about the supporters and, yeah. you know, they were struggling with the heat at times, the players. Uh, so I don't know whether that would have made much of a difference anyway because I would have struggled in that heat, you know. That would have been nice to maybe could have brought you off the bench. I did mention that yeah. you're loved by many and, you know, a West Ham friend of mine delighted that I was going to be talking to you and my friend's mum, uh-huh. she's a big Arsenal fan and she said that she was so got it when you left to go to West Ham but we mentioned those two teams and you had great experiences there I did I went to Arsenal at 19 I was very young Uh, that was a magnificent Mm. um, time for me 
at Arsenal playing alongside Ian Wright, you know, the England centre forward and Dennis Bergkamp and Tony Adams, the England captain, David Seaman, the England goalkeeper, all full of top international players. So, so I've gone there at 19, you know, and, and, and played a lot of games in that team and trained with these guys every day. That, that would have stood me in great stead going forward in my career. Um, and then, of course, West Ham, wonderful time with Harry Redknapp. Um, you know, one or two off the field incidents that, that went against me at times, but I, I've got no regrets in terms of, um, you know, my career. You know, the one regret maybe was the incident on um, with Al Berkovich on the training ground at West Ham, which, you know, I wasn't very proud of myself mm. for the reaction that I did that day. Um, but, I, I, you know, I took full responsibility for it. I accepted the fine, accepted the ban, and... Um, you know, I apologise profusely over that incident. Um, you know, but other than that, you know, I scored an awful lot of goals at West Ham. Again, played with young Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, uh, lots of lots of good players, Trevor Sinclair, these guys. And working under Harry was also a joy as well. There was never a dull moment when you work under yeah. Harry Redknapp. You, know? you mentioned Ian Wright, and it's funny that Ian actually went to Celtic, but he was there just before you arrived. Yeah, he was. Right, he arrived at Celtic yeah. just before myself. He also followed me to West Ham as well. He uh, played. I played with him at West Ham, and also I played with him at Arsenal. Um, and we're great friends, me and Righty. You know, he looked after me a bit when when I first arrived at Arsenal because he was the England. Mm. He was twenty. He was twenty nine, and I was nineteen. So you know, he guided me through them early days at Arsenal and helping me on the pitch and everything else and to get to train with these guys every day you, you realize how good they are the likes of Ian Wright and Merchant and Bergkamp you know they, they, were, they were magical players they could do great things you know with the football Harry Redknapp obviously then you had Arsene Wenger Martin O'Neill all them as managers big characters but so different yeah, they're all different. Everyone's different. I, I think I played in, you know, played under 15, 16 managers, including John Toshak, Mark Hughes, Gordon Strachan, um, uh, Robson, David Pleat, Joe Kinnear. You know, I could go on. There's a few more, and everybody is guys. different. Yeah, no, no two managers do the same things. Mm. You know, they've got different ideas things that work for them, things that they've been successful in previous clubs and they've brought to that specific club. Um, so they're all very much different and I've not quite cut my teeth in the management game yet. I've had a couple of close shaves with interviews and coaching and things like this. So I'm sure if the day was to come, you know, I'd have so much experience in terms of taking something for their managers and you know, because I, I, I'd be wise to do that. You know, it would be very unwise of me if I if I wasn't to learn from, from what I've been taught under these managers. You mentioned your international career and you actually retired early when you look at other players. Yeah, I did retire. I was only 31. Uh, but what happened was, uh, one of the reasons for that, um, I might have been a bit naive looking back. Mm. If I held on, I would have won a lot more caps on the 51 that I got I probably got up to about 70 or 80 if I if mm. I'd actually fulfilled all my duties in terms of uh, representing my country but what happened was it was a big uh, influx of players that retired at the same time 
Gary Speed, God rest his soul, Robbie Savage was omitted from the squad for under John Toshak, Mark Crosley, uh, Ryan Giggs, Mark Pembridge. There was a, there was a big, oh, ten players retired when Mark Hughes um, didn't quite take us to Russia when he was manager. We missed out in the playoff, and then John Toshak took over the role. And a load of players, well, for whatever reason, it could have probably because of their age and they wanted to concentrate on their club careers. And then I found myself one of the senior players and there was a new brand of players coming through, the brand of young players. And I just felt a little bit out of, uh, didn't quite feel a part of things. Mm. I decided to call it a day, but John Toshak was a brilliant guy. One of my heroes, obviously, what he achieved at Swansea as a play for Liverpool as well. A, a brilliant man, brilliant, brilliant man is John. He's then gone on record and said, I just wish John Hartson had hung around a bit longer. So I needed him to help guide, to guide me through with these young players. I needed his experience. Um, and he never, he never put that to me when I retired. But he, he said it about two years later. But maybe if at that time yeah. we got together and had a sensible chat, I may well have stayed on for a few more years. But, uh, you know, it's all with, well, you know, it's all with hindsight now, isn't it? It's, it's, but, you know? it's always that what if and all that. I was yes. at a, I was at a game recently and it was Gaelic football in Ireland and a young guy was playing and he actually had recovered from testicular cancer. His name is Oshin okay. Kiernan and you yourself okay. were diagnosed with it but at the stage when you went to get your diagnosis it had spread to your brain. Yeah, it spread to my lungs and it also spread to my brain. I, I was very ignorant of my health um, when what I do now, I urge young men, if they have any lumps on their testicles, it's very, very important to go to go and see your GP, who hopefully will then send you for a, a, a scan, an ultrascan or a CT scan to get, a, you know, a better diagnosis of whatever the problem is. Um, and that was my problem. I, I left it. I, I didn't go and get it checked. And, um, you know, I was very naive and probably ignorant of my health. And it, it, it nearly cost me my life, you know. And so now I've, I've, I've wrote a book 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I did a book. And, um, you know, in terms of don't do, you know, uh, as I, um, as I did, you know, do as I say type of thing. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of people would have read the book and, listened to my story and maybe took a bit of inspiration from it and, and gone and got themselves checked and, you know, check out, checked out themselves, do you know? When you got that diagnosis and you were told about it spreading, because obviously when you hear about cancer spreading, it is serious. When you were given that diagnosis and obviously in terms of being seriously ill, how did you react to that? Well, I was obviously totally devastated. A couple of weeks of the six weeks I spent in hospital, I was pretty much... Uh, in and out of, um, you know, I was, I was basically, uh, sleeping. I was heavily sedated on mm. different, um, antibiotics and strong tablets to make me sleep and to help me, you know, get through what I was going through. Um, 
But then there was periods when I was awake and my parents and my wife and my children would obviously yeah. come and visit me. And it was a tough period because at, at some stages I felt strong. Other times I felt really weak. Um, I was very, very emotional seeing my children. and All these things go through your head when you get mm. told you have cancer because, you know, cancer is not something that will clear up in 10 days. Yeah. You know, you can't just take a you know, tablets or antibiotics, you know, cancer, cancer is something that, you know, is a serious, serious um, thing to happen to anybody when you get diagnosed with cancer, because it, cancer takes good men away from people, yeah. good women, people lose their lives with cancer, and it's it's terrifying, and like everybody else, I, I was, I was terrified, I was, at times I thought I wasn't even going to be strong enough to come through, um, Mentally, you're all over the place because you, you, you're on these tablets and, you, you know, your feelings and your emotions are, are, are all over the place as a young man. Um, so, yeah, they were really, really worrying times. But, you know, having come through that, you know, the positivity now, you know, bounces off me now because I'm a positive guy. I've always been positive, mm. but from going through that experience um, where you're very, very down and you're very low, to have, to have been able to come through that, um, you know, makes you feel invincible at times, you know. There's, there's nothing now that I should allow yeah. to worry me, uh, having gone through what I went through. But but naturally, you know, you do. You've got still got to live your life. You've still got to get your kids to school on time. You've still got to, you know, prepare your, your future and get on with life. So, um, but... I've heard people saying when they beat cancer that I'm never, ever, ever going to worry about anything again because they're just so relieved, you know. But um, I suppose life goes on at the same time. Your family and your friends, having them around you at times when you felt so low, I suppose that kept you going and that motivated you. Well, it's massive. It's absolutely huge in terms of your, your family play a huge role because even up until... You know, you get the cancer and your family are there every day. My, my wife was there. You know, my wife was pregnant and, and another child, a small girl as well, a child. Um, so it's very hard for her. Again, emotions. And, and my parents were there. My dad was sleeping over in another the bed in the same ward. Um, so you do think about your family and how, how close and how, how personal, you know, your family is to you. Uh, you know, when you're going through something like that. Um, but you do the same for your kids, you know. You you, you would support them, you know. Yeah. I, I would, I'd, I'd allow somebody to take my own life to save my own child, you know. it's That's what you do for your family. Um, but again, you know, they, they were, you know, they, they went over and above um, what, what I expected of not just my family, but my friends, you know, your your mum and dad, they show that true love inside, mm. which, you know, you, you, Jenny, you really wouldn't expect anything else, but they, they were marvellous. My wife was, was incredible as well because it was so difficult for her. So, you know, my whole family were, were, were unbelievable, very, very blessed. Such a supportive and strong family around me because I think that's very important. You have battle scars to show what you went through. Your good pal Jackie McNamara has the same now because Jackie had a, a serious head injury too. So do you compare scars? 
<laughs> I've got a few more than Jackie, actually. I think yours looks better. I think, yeah. Yeah, but uh, no. Listen, in, in the cold light of day, you know, we can actually have a smile about yeah. things now. In terms of, you know, Jackie uh, went through a really difficult period. Stan Petrov as well yeah. came through leuke- leukemia. Um, myself, I went through testicular cancer, my lungs and my brain. So it's quite, you know, I don't know any other any other team that have yeah. had three, three, three guys that played together in the same era. Um, I've all been through so much in terms of, you know, poor health. But the good thing is, we've all come through it. Yeah. We're all we're all more wiser for the experience, and we're all more grateful. And we, you know, we've got better, better empathy on the way we look at life now and the future. Um, and we've all we all feel very very blessed, you know, to to still be here and to socialise together. And uh, no, but Jackie, we roomed together, me and Jackie, for five years. He's you know, when you go to a football club, you've always got yeah. one person that you side off with and things like that. Me and Jackie, very close. And we're still very close today, actually. He does he does a little bit of agency work for for myself and a few oh. other ex-footballers because he's, he's moved into the agency side now, yes. Oh, that's great. Your book, I absolutely loved it. I brought it on holidays and I was just engrossed. Couldn't put it down. But you were very open and honest in it, not just about your cancer experience, but other things in life that troubled you. Was it a case of you hope that people learn from, you know, inverted commas, your mistakes? Absolutely. And I've had people coming up to me and saying, John, I watched you on TMTV and I listened to you on Talk Sport and tell your story. Um so candidly and open and I can honestly say that you saved my life because I've, I had a lump they say to me I had a lump and I listened to you and I read your book and I went to the doctor and I previously had my testicle off I was diagnosed with testicular cancer and if I hadn't read your book or if I hadn't seen you talking about it you know I, I, I might not be here um so, listen, it's something that um, if I affected one people, one person, sorry, if, if I managed to save one person's life, then it was all worth it. Um, and I think when you're talking about cancer, you know, there's no, you know, there's no going around, you know, the boxes, you know, you, you, you and going around the outside of it and... You know, you, 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 it's, it's, you've got to be honest because cancer is such a terrifying uh, thing to happen. You know, it's something that should be taken seriously. And it's not something you can just ponder over. You know, you've got to tell your story. You've got to be outright and you've got to be forthright with it because people want to read it and go, you know, I wanted people to know how close I'd come. And uh, my support of the family showed me and my the true story of the six weeks when I went in and to the day that I the, to the day that I left hospital on a Zimmer frame. I was so weak I couldn't walk, I couldn't get out of bed on my own. You know, so all this I had to be honest. And it's all about being honest for me. It's all all my life's been honest. Um from my gambling addiction, you know, to everything, my children, my career. You know, and, and that's that's the way I've always been, and I'll always remain that way. The thing about it is, John, with your cancer and obviously your gambling addiction, you have come out the other way and you have proved people that you are a fighter, and now, you know, you have recovered. 
Well, obviously, you know, yes. it might be hard to say that with the addiction because they always yeah. say that you're never really recovered. But how are you about uh, that? Well, uh, you know, they do say every day. Um, you know, every day you look in the mirror and say, you know, today I won't have a bet. If you're an alcoholic or you've got a problem yeah. with a drink, you know, day to day, it's... Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm very strong now. I'm coming up to 10 years in October, October the 5th. The day of my birthday, uh, yeah. I always, I always, think, yeah, of, I yeah. always think of you. <laughs> yeah, because I've seen it in the uh, book. But, brilliant, yeah. yeah. It's actually my mother's birthday, so oh. 2000, 2011, yeah. uh, October the 5th, my mum's birthday. And that, that was actually my last, the last time I placed a bet. Um, so coming up about to 2021, October the 5th, I'll be, I'll be 10 years. I'll be 10 years, um, well you know, clean, as they say. So I'm firmly on top of that. My wife plays a part and keeps an eye on everything and you know even the children now the children are getting older they're aware yeah. so I get that extra help now as well which as an as a formal addict you need all the help yeah. you can get you know it's important to speak and get help you know don't don't build it all up inside and you know um, because it's important you know a, a problem shared is a is a problem solved. You know. You mentioned your problems, and there's other sports stars over here in Ireland who have come out and admitted that they've had gambling problems or suffered from depression. And I think that's what needs to be out there. We can't hide these problems; they're out there, and we need to talk about them. Well, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, mental health. There's an awful lot of support out there, more more so now than ever. Uh, and the one key word they say is you've got to try and talk yeah. you've got to try and tell somebody you know you build all that up inside and you know it'll make you worse it makes makes you a lot more anxious um tell somebody close to you you know go go to you know go and have you know see a practitioner go and go to classes go and get therapy there's there's an awful lot more out there now than what was maybe out there 20 years ago it's spoken about now. People with mental health are not frightened to come out and admit that it's it's weak or, or they're, they're embarrassed to share it because of what people might think of them. You know, they might have been this big, rough monster of a player, but, you know, cancer doesn't stop for anybody. Mental yeah. health doesn't stop for anybody. Um, you know, so it's, it's massively important that you share the problem and speak speak openly about what you're going through so then you can go and get help you know and asking for help is is, is um, you know you should be credited for asking for help it's when you don't ask for help you know and, and that's when you can make the issue a lot lot worse so that it's an awful lot more help out there now which is needed because we're all human beings and you know we all go through different things and um, different feelings different illnesses Divorce, gambling, addictions. We're human beings and, yeah. and we're not robots. We're not robots. People get problems. People struggle with certain situations and, uh, and ultimately, you know, every now and again, you might just need a little bit of, uh, a little bit of help. No shame in asking for that. That's exactly it. You're punditry. You're never shy from saying what you think. And I follow you on Instagram and follow you on Twitter. And I love what you say. And as I said, you're not afraid to say it. Well, I think 
again, if you're going on television and you're taking a wage off a company, then, you know, there's a, there's a degree of onus on you to, to say what you think. Um, you know, and sometimes you, you've got to bite your lip at times, you know, with the way things are. Um, now you've got, you've got to sort of tend to hold back a little bit because if you go too far over the top, you know, you can find yourself out of, you know, out of what you're doing, out, out of business or, or out of your job. Um, so sometimes it doesn't matter how honest you are. You can't quite come out and say what you think. You've got to be a little bit honest. You've got to be a little bit clever around what you do as well. Um, and that's a huge part of being a pundit now. You've got to be clever and you've got to be a bit more streetwise in terms of what you're saying and how you say it. So, you know, especially more so now in, 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 in our days now with the different cultures and, and everything else, um, you know, you've got to be, you, you've got to be um, politically correct at times. You've got to say the right things. If you don't, if, you, if you're caught... You know, not not adhering to what how, how you should see the world and how you see the adverse, different uh, rationalities, things like this. Then you know, so that's why when you go on, you've got to know what you're talking about. Um, you know, so I, I enjoy I enjoy the punditry, and I actually enjoy um, watching the girls get involved now as well, the women yeah. because the women have, you know they got fantastic knowledge on the game. Yeah. And I've got I've got four daughters. I've got two sisters. One of my sisters, sorry, passed away last year. Yeah. Uh, my mum. So I'm surrounded by girls, and there's nothing Less more than I'd women. like for. Yeah, there's nothing more I'd love more than one of my daughters to come home one day and say, "Dad, I want to, you know, I want to go into a media course. Um, I want to study for three years. I want to study the mm. game. I want to study." You know, and I'd be absolutely delighted if one of my daughters was to get on national TV and speak about football. So that's the way I feel about it. Um, but I enjoy the pundit. I've been doing it for 10 or 11 years now. I've, I've skipped the management side of things for now. Um, but uh, we'll just see what happens. I'm, I'm not too sure, Denise, if, you know, sometimes you sit back and think, well, what am I going to do for the next 30 years? You know, I'm only 46, and sometimes you think, yeah. I'm not sure whether I'll last in the media. I'm like you that, know, there's, there's a couple of thousand footballers retire every year, and they're all looking to go into the media, and they're all looking to get opportunities, and, you know, they're good speakers, they're good-looking, and producers <laughs> might like them, might give them a chance, and then you've got to move out something. So I think you've always got to have something else up your sleeve, yes. you know, whether it's you're involved in... A, you know, uh, in anything, you could be involved in property. You, you might get yourself in a couple of ambassador ambassadorial roles, plugging things for people, and you know, getting this, getting money that way or this way. And because a lot of people, you know, they finish football and they've got to work again because they never, they never played. I had a gambling addiction. I've had a divorce, so your money can can dry up. You know, um, if you're not careful with things as well. So. You do, you do think, you know, we're not all Gary Lineker's and we're, all, we're not all fortunate to, you know, to have that 25, 30 years in the media. Yeah. Gary's very good as a friend of mine as well. So, but we're not all as fortunate as that or as talented maybe to keep going for all them years. Um, so sometimes, you know, you wonder, you sit back, I do with my wife and I'm saying to each other, well, look, 
you know, we got hopefully got living, lot of living to do. We yeah. got three little girls, and you're going to support these as much as you can, and you know, give them the best that that that, uh, that you know you would have wanted in terms of love and support. So you do think, yeah, I do wonder sometimes, you know, what what is going to happen in the next thirty years? What am I going to be doing? Um, I'm forty six years of age. You just don't know. We don't know what opportunities, if there are any opportunities, that will come your way. You know, you just don't know. That's exactly it. West Ham and Arsenal, two differing seasons for them. West Ham obviously qualifying for Europe. Arsenal miss out on it. Well, brilliant for West Ham. I'm delighted for David Moyes, my my former club. The fans there, they've been through quite a lot. They've had six or seven different managers in the last 10, 12 years. Um, and I'm just delighted that they backed David Moyes at the start of the season. Uh, David Gold and David, David Sullivan and Karen Brady, the board there. He's, he's done really well. He's formed a really good side. Um, some fantastic players that, that are in that West Ham team, you know, underrated players, but have showed that they can play at, play at this very top level. Um, so I'm delighted for West Ham. Uh, you know, I know the fans are like down to the ever so passionate about their football. And now they managed to get into the Europa League, which is brilliant for them. It's great for the supporters to go and have these trips over to Europe, you know, and all these other places. And by the time the games come around next season, hopefully, you know, the fans will be allowed back in or, or a certain portion of the fans. We mentioned Celtic at the start, so we'll finish off with Celtic. Yeah. A season that could have been something else, 10 in a row, didn't happen. Yeah. Actually, just it fell apart in some ways. Fans are looking for the manager to be announced, what you thought of the season. And obviously, are you a bit worried at how slow the board are in appointing a manager? Yeah, I think everybody wants some sort of announcement. Mm. I think that's what we want. It's not knowing. It's not knowing mm. who's who's in the frame. Mm. Now the club, they want to do things properly and don't want to make wrong announcements yeah. where then they might look a little bit um, silly for doing that. Celtic's an institution. It's a huge club. It's an unbelievable club. I'm not party to any of these things in terms of facts. You know, we're all presuming things and assuming that this is going to happen, that's going to happen. <laughs> I do a radio show in Glasgow, and every time I go in, you know, I do it once a week, go radio, and once a week, whenever we go in, Eddie Howe's getting announced this week. Eddie Howe, and I'm like, look, I'm fed up at this. So the rumours will keep going, and I'm not really going to get too carried away with it. The Celtic fans need a reaction now. Um, the season's gone. You can't really dwell on it. Um, it's gone. You can't bring it back. True. It was a poor season, to, you know, to be kind. Poor, and it's a very kind word. I could go on and on and on <laughs> on what I think's gone wrong. But what I will say is the fans will certainly now buy, they'll buy into it again. They'll buy the new season tickets and they want a huge reaction from Celtic Football Club. There'll be a, there'll be a huge turnover of players. There'll be loan players going back to their respective clubs. Celtic need about six or seven new players. They need to hold on to their best players. So there's an awful lot to do there. And on the back of that, you've got Steven Gerrard's Rangers, who have just won the league at an absolute canter. 23 points. It's incredible to think that Celtic was so, so far ahead you know, a season or two ago. Steve Gerrard deserves an awful lot of credit for, for what he's done. He's gone through the league season unbeaten in terms of the league. 
and they've stopped that ten in a row, the unprecedented ten in a row, which mm. has been a much it would have been as important for for the Rangers side as to stop it mm. as much as it was for for Celtic to go and achieve it. So credit has to be given when it, when it's deserved, and he does deserve a bit of credit for turning that around. And um, and and this team have been excellent as well. But you know, as as from the Celtic side. They've got to respond. They've got to respond in a big, big way because Rangers have a bit of momentum now. The ascendancy will be will be on their side. So it's up to Celtic now. It's up to Celtic to produce somebody that they believe in in terms of a manager, and and you know let's get that title back. Yes, please God. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope to God sometime with these restrictions and everything that you do make your way over to Ireland or there's some event that I will get the chance to meet you. Yes. Then I'll have to get the old book site. I'll have to see where the book is and get it. Well, Denise, but a lot of the time, I, I, I used to go down to, um, we used to fly into Cork there yeah. and we used to hire a car and drive all the way down to Kenmare. Oh, and I used to stay in a hotel called Park Nasilla, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it's not far from the Ring of Kerry mm-hmm. Golf Club, and I, I love I love that part of the world. We used to go up. Well, we used to. <laughs> we used to go to Marlow races on a Friday. We'd have a little bit of a road trip, you know, every year, and uh, they were great, great days. I used to come over with Vinnie Jones and his oh. late wife Tanya. We used to have some fun over there, and. Uh, Lovely, lovely part of the world. Well, um, we have centre parks now here, exactly where I live in the middle of Ireland, Longford. It's kind of like a lake. Oh yeah. Yes. Right. So, yeah. Oh right. Yeah, I love centre parks. Longford, you will. Oh, Longford, right? Okay. Well, we love centre parks. It's great. There's there's one in Sherwood Forest, and I think there's one in Woburn now as well. Uh, Walburn we'll in England. Parks so. now to uh, issue out an invite to Big Bad John to come over to London. <laughs> we might get a bit of discount because yes. you give him a little plug now as well. You never know. That's it. Might let one of my five kids in for nothing. I hope so. You see me driving round. I'm riding around on my little on my little bicycle. I stand out a mile. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you so much, John, for this. You're all right. All the best. Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye.